All right, well, this morning we are going to be in the Old Testament. All throughout Bible college and two-thirds of seminary, I was a New Testament major. I love the New Testament. It's in the New Testament that we see um, God's plan of salvation realized in the person and work of Jesus. The New Testament is amazing. But in year three of seminary, the most godly man that I have ever met, uh, my Hebrew professor at Northwest Baptist Seminary, a guy by the name of Dr. Herman Ostell, who's now with the Lord, he converted me to Old Testament studies. And it's been my passion ever since. I love the Old Testament. And what I find most of the time when I'm in churches uh, or doing Sunday school groups or what have you, the Old Testament is typically, you know, misunderstood or just confusing. And I'm the first to admit that it is. Um, I mean this reverently, but there are some weird things in the Old Testament. It starts off with a talking snake. Later on, there's also a talking donkey. Food falls from heaven. The sun stops. A lot of animals die. It's a weird 39 books. Do you agree? It's kind of strange. But it's also a marvelous, amazing story about the beginnings of God's plan to restore and redeem humanity. And really, to get a good grasp on what's happening in the New Testament, you need to know what's happening in the Old Testament. So it's one of my passions to preach through the Old Testament when I have an opportunity to do so. So today we're going to be in a passage that I found pretty confusing, Genesis chapter 22. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, Hopefully by the end of our time together, we have a little bit of clarity around what's happening in that particular chapter. Now, I haven't been here for months and months establishing context, so this morning I need to establish the context. We can't just jump into a passage. You have to know where you are and what's going on. So the book of Genesis is part of a larger body of literature, a larger collection of books called the Pentateuch. If you're taking notes, write that down. You can Google how to spell that. The Pentateuch. And that means the five scrolls or the five books. And it's a reference to the five books of Moses, also called the five books of the law. The first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, each one of those books serves a specific function for the nation of Israel. A little bit of background. In the book of Exodus, Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And God rescues them out of Egypt to take them to the promised land, the land that he's going to give them, the land that he promised Abraham all the way back early in the book of Genesis. Along the way, the people sin, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. At the end of that 40 years, this period of judgment, they're sitting on what's known as the plains of Moab, which look down into the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan River and go take the city of Jericho and eventually claim this promised land. All right? So these books were written by Moses on the plains of Moab. And here's why. These people have been enslaved for 430 years and then wandering for another 40. They have no cultural or religious identity. You know what they know well? They know Egypt. They know Egypt's food, Egypt's landscape, uh, landscape, Egypt's rulers, Egypt's gods. Many of them probably only had a passing memory of Yahweh, their God. They don't really know a whole lot about what's going on, who they are, where they came from. They've been in in slavery almost twice as long 
as America has been in existence. I asked Siri on my phone, how old is America? And it was 240-some years or whatever. So if you double that and just take off a couple of years, that's how long these people were slaves. No doubt some of them had just a faint memory of this God, Yahweh. But now God has started to reveal himself to this nation in amazing and powerful ways. So while they're on the plains of Moab, about to go take possession of their land, Moses writes these five books. And here's their function. The book of Genesis introduces the nation of Israel to her God. The book of Exodus provides them with some historical context, some background to their present situation. The book of Leviticus, to us, is just kind of a, you know, a snooze fest, but honestly, it's an amazing book, and it's one of my favorite to preach through, all right? In the book of, and I mean that respectfully, I do. I love, I love Leviticus. When we started that college ministry a couple of years ago, we started by preaching through the book of Leviticus, and we said at the very beginning, hey, if Jesus is in this thing, it's going to go. If not, Leviticus is going to kill it, and the ministry is still going strong, amen? Yeah. Leviticus is awesome. So in Leviticus, you see um, God condescend, God come down from heaven to actually live among his people. Go ahead and write this down for later. Uh, the last five verses of the book of Exodus describes God's presence coming down and filling this thing called the tabernacle. And he takes up residence on or above this box called the Ark of the Covenant, Exodus chapter 37. So Leviticus is all about God condescending to be with his people. And then for the people, how in the world do you live with God literally in your midst? You get to the book of Numbers, and Numbers gives an accounting of the people as they're preparing for battle in the promised land. And then Deuteronomy, it's a fancy word that just means second law. Deuteronomy is a review of the laws that God gave through Moses to the people. So these five books gave the people back their cultural and their spiritual identity. We are children of God. We're going to take this promised land that he gave us. Are you with me? A little interaction on Sunday morning is great. Are you with me? Awesome. Okay. Now we're going to jump back into the book of Genesis where Israel meets her God. Okay. Genesis is divided into two chunks. Genesis 1 to 11 is God dealing with humanity on a macro level, on a global scale. You have the creation of the universe, then sin enters the human race in chapter 3, then you have this global flood, and then you have this event called the Tower of Babel where God confuses the languages and disperses the people and they begin to spread out and fill the globe. That's God dealing with humanity on a big scale. And then at the end of chapter 11, down into chapter 12, and then all the way through the rest of the book, chapter 50, God is dealing with humanity on a micro level. He's dealing with the man, Abram, later Abraham, and his family. So God dealing on a big scale and then God dealing on a small scale. So open up your Bibles to... Uh, Genesis, you already have your finger in 22. That's great. That's where we're going to be. Go to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to meet this guy. His name is Abram. His name is later changed in a covenant ceremony by God to Abraham. Just for the sake of clarity and simplicity, we're going to call him Abraham. So at the end of chapter 11, he is introduced. His dad is a man by the name of Terah. He has three sons. One of them is Abram, or Abraham. He marries Sarai, and um, they are called out of this place called Ur of the Chaldeans to go to this land called Canaan. And Canaan is the promised land, uh, later known as the land of Israel. 
So here we are introduced to Abram, and now he's going to become the main character in the narratives that follow. In chapter 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to read the first couple of verses. Follow along with me, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God promises uh, Abram here, God promises Abraham that he's going to be a great nation. He's going to have a big family, and he's going to be a channel of blessing. And the next chapter, chapter 13, God promises to give him the land of Canaan. So we have this Abrahamic covenant that contains promises for a big family, a channel of blessing. We know that that blessing is Jesus. Yeah, Jesus came from the line of Abraham. And the promised land. God promises these things to Abraham. Now, in order to have a big family and to have a channel of blessing for the rest of the world, you need something. You need a son, right? You need a kid. So, at the ripe old age of 75, God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Okay, I'm 75, but all right, God, we're going to go forward with this. When's that going to happen? In my timing, he says. And 25 years later, at the age of 100, he finally gets his one and only beloved son of the promise, Isaac. How long have you had to wait for something you've been praying for? 25 years Imagine that faith journey. But he finally gets his son in Genesis chapter 21. And he names him Isaac. And he loves him. Here we go. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. What? Are you kidding me? You. 25 years ago, actually longer than this now, we don't know how old Isaac is, maybe this was 35 or 40 years ago, you promised me a son. And even before that, you said that I am going to be a channel of blessing to the world. In order for that to happen, I need the son. And you promised him to me. You made me wait 25 years. I finally got him. I'm 100 years old, and now I have to go sacrifice him? What kind of God is this? Remember, we're in the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis introduces uh, Israel to her God. So that's the question being asked. Who is this God, and what's he like? What kind of God requires child sacrifice? Now, take a look at verse 3. 
Look at Abraham here. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his slaves and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. He responds almost immediately. Vision ends. He wakes up early in the morning. He begins making preparations. And know what he's not doing? He's not protesting. Wouldn't you as a parent kind of do like the backpedal prayer? Like, okay, God, I know I said I was going to follow you and all that, but you want me to kill my son? How are any of your promises going to happen if I don't have him? But we don't see this response from Abraham. He wakes up and he obeys right away. What on earth is going on? It's something called the history of religion. And I want to walk you through that right now. So early humans came to the realization that their survival as a species depended upon a couple of things. Sun, rain, food, water. They also realized from a very early time that they were not in control of these things. They were dependent upon outside forces for their very survival. They didn't know what those outside forces were, but they thought, hey, something up there has to be in control of all this. And they called those forces the gods. The gods are in control. So the belief arose that the gods were either for you or the gods were against you. So as a person in that day whose family and livelihood were completely dependent upon these unseen forces, these gods, you needed them to be for you. So... How did you guarantee that they would be for you? The next time you had a harvest, you took some of that harvest, you put it on an altar, and you offered it up and said, thank you, unseen forces, thank you, gods, for giving me the right provisions to grow these crops and keep my family alive. Make sense? Okay. Here's the troubling part. What do you think happened when people sacrificed to the gods, but the weather still didn't cooperate? Instead of just the right amount of rainfall, you got raging floods. Instead of just the right amount of sunshine to help your crops go, you got famine. What do you think the people concluded? Say the word with me. I didn't offer enough. I didn't offer enough. Because what religion has had built into it from the beginning is this thing called anxiety. You never knew where you stood with the gods. You had to appease them. You had to gain their favor. So flip that. What if things went well? What if you had just the right amount of rain and just the right amount of sun? Your crops grew. Your family was fed. Everything went well. Well, now you had to show the gods that you were serious about not only getting, but maintaining their favor. So, you offered more and more and more. But even when things went well, how would you ever know that you offered enough? Anxiety either way. Whether things went well or things went poorly, you never knew where you stood with these gods. Because as soon as something went wrong, you thought, the gods are angry. So put yourself in their sandals now and ask, what is the most important thing that I can offer to these gods to show them that I'm really, really serious about getting and maintaining their favor? What would it be? A child. And in this culture, your most important child was your firstborn son. So that's who got sacrificed. 
It's horrible, isn't it? But this is how religion worked in their day. Look again at verse 3. We read it earlier. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his slaves and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, so he's measuring up his son, basically, how much wood do I need? He set out to the place that God had told him about. So again, notice that Abraham wasn't shocked by what God asked him to do. He clearly knows what to do, and he knows how to respond. This is how religion works in Abraham's day. And he's still in process, just like we are sometimes. He's still in process trying to figure out who is this God and what's he like. Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. So after Moses dies sometime later, uh, Joshua, his successor, takes over and he's renewing the covenant with the people that Moses had made with God and the people. Look at verses 1 and 2 in Joshua 24. And what he's doing is he's going through and rehearsing Israel's history. But this is how he starts out. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Here's the point, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. So we don't know whether or not Abraham actually worshipped idols. There's all these legends in the rabbinic literature that aren't true, but they're entertaining, that says uh, that Abraham, he crushed all the idols of his father and he did all these amazing things. We don't know that. What we do know for sure from the text is that Abraham's dad worshipped idols. So Abraham at least grew up in this culture knowing how people interacted with the gods. They were dependent upon the gods for their favor and survival, or so they thought. So when God says, hey, get up and go sacrifice your son, give him back to me. It's what I'm demanding for my favor. That's what Abraham knows. So he proceeds to obey God. This was how the world worked in Abraham's day. Or so they thought. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. On the third day, they're walking along now, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Can you imagine that walk? So here you are as a dad. You've got your two slaves back here. You and your son are walking along. Um, He's carrying some stuff. You've got some stuff. You're going along. And you know that in three days, this son of yours is as good as dead. You know what's coming. This little guy doesn't know. It'll be a long three days. Verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then I will come back to you. Is that what your Bible says? What's it say? We? What are you talking about we? You're going to kill your son. But he says, we will come back after we worship. The two of us. It's a declaration of faith. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is often called the hall of faith 
Uh, it's this chapter about a lot of the heroes in the Old Testament, the things that they had to endure, their testimonies of faith. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 down through verse 19. By faith, Abraham, when tested, or I'm sorry, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Here it is, the kicker, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Again, Abraham was in process trying to figure out who this God is and what he's like. What he did know for sure is that this God said that he would give him a big family, that he would be a channel of blessing, that he would give him a very specific chunk of land. And so far, this God had provided. Abraham had no reason to doubt him. So the religion that he knew in his day, when God said, go sacrifice your son, he thought, man... I'm going to go forward with it. God is able to bring him back from the dead. God made promises, and I trust God. We're in the same situation. God has made promises, and we are invited to trust him in those promises. Take a look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up, and he said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Imagine getting that question. Man, how do you handle that? So here you are walking along with your little kiddo, uh, you're all carrying the sacrificial implements. You're going to sacrifice. He's no doubt asking you about this God. Hey, Dad, I've heard you talking about Yahweh. We're going to go sacrifice to him. Who is he? What's he like? What do you tell him? Well, he doesn't like kids. You know, like, what do you say? <laughs> right? You know that you are leading your son to his death. And now he asks the question you've been dreading. Dad. I see the fire and the wood and the knife. Where's the lamb? Ah, knife in the heart. But here's another faith statement from Abraham. Take a look at his response. Verse 8, Abraham answered, no doubt through tears, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Wow. It's kind of hit me a little bit. It's the first time I've preached this passage as a parent. Um, man, what a faith statement. God's going to provide. We have a God who provides. God's going to provide. We're going to move forward in faith. God made promises. I believe those promises. I'm going to trust, and he will provide. Verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He then bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, no doubt with some urgency. Here I am, replied Abraham. I'm sure he's like, please, give me something. Don't let me bring this knife down. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, in a thick brush, he saw a ram caught by his horns. And he went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it. And he called that place, here's the memorial name, the Lord will provide. And it's said from that day on the mountain where the Lord will provide. We have a God who provides. Amen? Amen. The question was, who is this God, and what's he like? And then the question was, what kind of God would demand human sacrifice? The answer is, well, all of them. Right? But not this God. At the beginning, you think that's what's going to happen. Then you get to the end, and you realize that he does something unprecedented. He provides. And what's more is he interrupts a sacrifice. You never interrupted a sacrifice. Here the God actually shows up, interrupts the sacrifice, and provides an alternative. All the other gods of the world demand your firstborn son. This God doesn't. And in fact, what's amazing is that about 2,500 years later, he's going to give you his. It's not about us sacrificing. It's about God sacrificing. It's not about what Abraham does. The story isn't about the the faith of Abraham or the obedience of Isaac or any of that nonsense. The story is about revealing the character of God. He shows up on a scene to a people who are trying to figure out who he is and what he's like, and he uses Abraham's life to display his character. He says, I am God. I am creator God. I'm the only real God. I'm not like the gods of the other nations that are angry, that are demanding, that are greedy, and that, that get all they can take. I'm the God who shows up the God who provides, and the God who gives, simply because I love you. That's the kind of God I am. He's the opposite from all of the other gods. And what he goes on to do at the end of this ceremony is reiterate his covenant blessings to Abraham. Take a look at verse 15. The angel of Yahweh called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. Blessing number one. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Blessing number two. And through your offspring, a man by the name of Jesus... All the nations on the earth will be blessed, promise number three, because you have obeyed me. This is the God who provides. This is our God. It's Abraham's God. It's Israel's God. It's Jesus' father, and it's our God too. When I first got the call to preach here uh, about a month ago, this text instantly came to mind. One, because I love the Old Testament, like I said earlier, and I want to preach out of the Old Testament. Um, and I was hoping that, that maybe getting a little bit of the historical and cultural background in there might shed some light on the story. But secondly, I just wanted this passage to be a word of encouragement to this body 
specifically. You guys have been through a lot. And the fact that I'm up here talking tells me that you don't have a pastor yet. Right? That's a hard thing. I have literally been right where you are, waiting on God and waiting on God and waiting on God. It wasn't 25 years, but we were waiting for a while. But God had the perfect man and the perfect family, and he brought them to our church. And I wanted to encourage you with that this morning. The perfect man and the perfect family for this particular body is out there. We have a God who provides. And if this God provided for our sin problem and took care of it by being the only God to give his one and only son, and then if his son established his church to make us the people of God, you better believe that he cares enough to provide. So be encouraged. Your pastor's coming. You've got a God who provides for you. I also wanted to just throw one more thing out there. Can you think of any other stories in the Bible? I don't like the word stories. That makes it sound like it's made up. Can you think of any other accounts or narratives in the Bible about a promised, beloved, one and only son who carried the wood upon which he was going to die? Who was as good as dead for three days, who was ultimately rescued from death, who then challenged, I guess beforehand, the conventional wisdom of his day that said the gods are angry. And he said, no, the gods aren't angry. God loves you. God is gracious and merciful and has provided salvation for you. Does that sound familiar? This is the son of our great God. He loves us. He's provided for us. We have a God who provides Be encouraged by his word this morning. Pray with me. God in heaven, I thank you for the text, even the strange, obscure texts in the Old Testament, because God, in them is great theological truth. God, I thank you that you are not like the other gods of this world, the demons that pose as gods, that pose as being something powerful. They are not. God, I thank you that you are the one the only, the true creator God. I thank you that that none of this took you by surprise. You had a plan from the beginning. You chose to reveal yourself to all creation and then to this people, to this man, this family, and to use them to bring salvation to the world. God, what an amazing story. I pray that you would give us, your people, a burning desire to know the text, a passion about the word, the Old Testament and the New Testament. God, help us to see in both Testaments your overarching narrative of salvation and this grand, masterful story that you have woven throughout history. You are a great God. You are the God who provides. And I pray specifically for my brothers and sisters here this morning. God, I pray that you would provide a man and a family for this place to come in and lead, to bring the text, to faithfully exposit, to be a leader, to guide this body, to shepherd the flock. God, I pray that you would meet that need because we know you care and we know you're working. God, we know too that sometimes that takes a little bit of time. So I pray for great patience from this body and other men in the community to rise up and to bring the text. God, bless them, I pray. Give them strength, give them endurance, give them patience. We pray too for the man who will eventually take this pulpit. God, we ask that you would be preparing him right now. Pray that he would be a faithful man, a man passionate about the scriptures a man who loves people, a man who sacrifices. God, bless this body, I ask. Bless our time together. And I pray most of all that we would be encouraged through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.